0: listening to the citizens podcast from citizens church in birmingham alabama we see from the jump in genesis that sin makes a mess of our lives when we sin things don't get better they get far worse we hurt ourselves and we hurt everyone around us and the same is true in first and second kings that the monarch the king's sin and it goes really poorly David brings sin into the monarchy. All people are sinful, but he brings in violent sexual sin and murder. And that kind of never goes away from his descendants. The rest of his time as king and the kings after him kind of wrestle with the sins of the house, all of these chapters. And we see Solomon, his son, maybe the greatest king in Israel, the biggest kingdom, the wealthiest man to ever live, kind of eventually gives into worship of foreign gods. That's what Sophony was reading earlier. All these foreign gods, he starts worshiping them. He leaves the God of his fathers. He leaves the God of the Bible. He leaves the God Yahweh for foreign gods. And it's a disaster. And it says this in 1 Kings 11, Therefore the Lord said to Solomon, Since this has been your practice and you have not kept my covenant, and my statutes that have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and will give it to your servant. Yet for the sake of David, your father, I will not do it in your days, but I will tear it out of the hand of your son. However, I will not tear away all the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of David, my servant, for the sake of Jerusalem that I have chosen. And it introduces this kind of controlling idea for the, for the next 45 chapters, that things are going to fall apart, but God is going to keep a son of David, son of Solomon on the throne, even though they failed. And they'll repeat this idea over and over in the text is sin makes a mess of things that God's promise is to bring a Messiah through David's offspring and their failures can't stop God's purpose. His promise to bring about the true king, the savior of the world, is going to go on even as these kings make a mess of things. And this judgment, this tearing away of the kingdom, happens almost immediately upon Solomon's death. Solomon's son, Rehoboam, becomes king, and God's word simply says this, and he, Rehoboam, did evil because he prepared not his heart to seek the Lord. And over and over in Chronicles and First Kings, they give these kind of judgments of like, what does God think of these people's reigns? And he drops it on Rehoboam, and it's pretty simple. This man did evil. But then when you read the story of Rehoboam, it's kind of more complicated. It's more complicated because the people wanted relief from all these government building projects. They were building walls and building cities and storehouses and all this stuff. And they come to Rehoboam and he kind of handles it like a jerk and people don't appreciate it being treated like a jerk. And so another guy named Jeroboam rises up and of the 12 tribes of Israel, he convinces 10 of them to go with him. He cuts the kingdom. That's the tearing away. So Rehoboam, the king in David's line, is left of Judah and Benjamin. And they're called Judah from now on. And then the other 10 tribes, they take the name Israel, kind of become the northern kingdom from here on out. And Jeroboam, this leader of the northern kingdom, he immediately leads the people into idolatry. It's like like a paragraph later. He's like, man, we're going to make two golden calves, and we're going to worship those instead of the true God. We're going to worship statues of golden cows instead of the God who brought us out of Egypt and from out of slavery and has brought us to the promised land. And if this sounds familiar, it should. This is Exodus 32 being replayed. When they were taken out of Egypt, Moses went up the mountain and was meeting with God, receiving the Ten Commandments. There's a storm, crowd, things, storm cloud, things are crazy And down below, Aaron makes a golden calf. And while they can't wait for Moses to come back and say what God said, Israel starts worshiping a golden calf then, hundreds of years before. So Jeroboam, as soon as he gets the crown of these 10 tribes, he leads them to sin. And he makes an altar at Bethel with one golden calf and another altar in the wilderness of Dan for another golden calf. And all 10 tribes immediately go into this idolatrous pagan worship cult. And as that happens, we see Rehoboam leading Judah and Benjamin, the southern kingdom. They start fighting wars against each other. Rehoboam and Jeroboam and they're fighting each other and you just see things are a mess. Even the Egyptian pharaoh Shishak comes and invades and Rehoboam kind of repents when he sees pharaoh coming and then God protects him. But then Shishak kind of like robs the temple anyways and gets away, but their lives are saved. And then Rehoboam kind of like stops repenting and goes back to idol worship. And you see as much detail as I give you there, The story is more complicated, but the result isn't complicated. Rehoboam did evil in the sight of the Lord. And that's kind of how all these stories go. There's lots of details, but the Lord's judgment is what's true of their life. They either did good in the sight of the Lord and followed him and didn't follow idols, or they did evil, where they followed idols. They led others to follow pagan gods, these idols. And they became an unjust people and did wicked things. The next king, uh, Abajim, gets this judgment on his reign in chapter 15. It says, now reigned Abajim over Judah. Three years he reigned in Jerusalem. He walked in all the sins of his father, Rehoboam, which he had done before him. And his heart was not perfect with the Lord his God, as the heart of David his father was. And Abazim only reigns three years, and how does Abazim turn from turn aside from the Lord? Well, he gets this huge battle finally of Jeroboam. They're going to have a showdown, and in the showdown, Abazim crushes Jeroboam. He crushes the ten tribes in a way they never recover. This is a decisive military victory, and he even captures this area of Bethel where they were doing the cow worshiping. And you would think, oh, what a win! He's going to turn them back to the Lord. But the problem is this, Abijam doesn't. He actually lets Judah go ahead, and now you guys get to worship the cow too. And it leads all of Judah into sin as well. And it will actually go for 300 years, this pagan worship site at Bethel. It won't be till 12 generations and 300 years later till King Josiah, his great great, great 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 grandson finally tears it down and leads the people away from worshiping this golden calf. And you see Abashim, after him comes his son Asa, who's mostly a good king. First Kings 10 says this, And Asa began to reign over Judah, and he reigned 41 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Makkah, the daughter of Ab- Abbe Salom and Asa did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, as his David father had done. He put away the male cult prostitutes out of the land. He removed the idols that his fathers had made. He also removed Maka, his mother, from being queen mother because she had made an abominable image for Asherah. And Asa cut down her image and burned it in the book of Kidron. And the high places were not taken away, but the high places were not taken away. And nevertheless, the heart of Asa was wholly true to the Lord all of his days. And this is kind of how it goes. Most of the kings are bad. All the kings of the 10 tribes are pretty much bad. But the kings of Judah, there's a couple good ones. And the Lord keeps giving these judgments. Either they led the people to God or they led them in to idolatry. And we see because Israel had only bad kings, the 10 tribes, they get conquered about 135 years before the southern kingdom. God gives them over their enemies and all 10 tribes kind of disappear into the Assyrian empire. Now, I want to show you a chart that kind of shows you all the things. And there's no way you can read it because there's way too many kings involved. But take a look. It's color coded. This is why I picked it. This is the first 150 years. A whole lot of red. Red. Red doesn't mean good. Red means did evil in the sight of the Lord. Couple greens on the Judah side, a lot of red on the other side. He hit us with the next 150 years. A lot of red, Assyrian captivity. Israel's just done. This side, little more green, but still an awful lot of red to be God's leader. That's enough of the chart. But the chart just shows you it didn't go well. That would be the summary of all these chapters of God said, I'm going to tear away the kingdom. And over and over, the kings did what was evil in the sight of the Lord with a couple of kind of, <sighs> of a Hezekiah, of a Josiah, of a Asa, of a Josaphat, of these good kings that turned people's heart back to God. But we need to remember, it's easy to think, idolatry, oh, that's like this ancient thing, or it's like far away from me, or I don't really understand it. Remember, the New Testament talks about idolatry directly to us, saying this is how we respond to the gospel. Look at 1 Thessalonians 1.9 with me. This is Paul talking. He says, For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Everybody worships something, whether you believe or not. Everyone finds value, assigns value somewhere. Everyone lives for something, even if it's chaotic and changing all the time. When you put your faith in Christ, you're taking your faith out of something and putting it into Jesus. And whatever your faith is in that's not Jesus is an idol. For them, they would worship things like Asherah. You probably heard her name up here a couple of times. She was the goddess of fertility, And if you wanted healthy kids or to get pregnant or prolong your family line or maybe even the rain to fall, to have crops, people in the ancient world in these pagan nations would worship Asherah. You can see why Israel would be tempted to do so because that's not a bad thing to want. It's not a bad thing to want healthy kids. But it is a bad thing to trust something other than the true God to get those healthy kids. An idol is anything you love, trust, worship, or value above God. Anything. we do the same today with money, with relationships, with our kids, with our friends, with status, with success, with getting respect. One theologian said it this way, that our heart is just an idol factory. Over and over, we will find things to value over God, to often pursue our legitimate needs in illegitimate ways. And I think we can do a heart check. Next time you sin, next time you have a moment, you're like, ooh, that wasn't great of me. Ooh, that that was a sin. Ask yourself, what idol am I serving that is leading me to this point of sin? What's the idol? Here's an example. Perhaps you tell a lie in a group. You're at a party. You tell a lie. You do a big exaggeration. Did you do it to protect maybe your reputation? That could be an idol. Did you do it out of fear of other people's approval or wanting them to think you're cooler than you are? That could be an idol. Perhaps it's something like the idol of success or validation. Instead of trusting the Lord with your career, trusting your Lord with your future, we overpack our schedules. We refuse rest. We make work a sorry God that doesn't love you, but just wants things from you. See, we may not call things like astroths anymore, But it's idolatry just the same to serve something other than God first with our lives. And as Israel and Judah kind of careen into idolatry and disaster, you might ask, Where's God in all this? Like, this is a mess. These are real people's lives. People getting conquered by the Assyrians and later by the Babylonians is no joke. People are going to die. Cities are destroyed. What is going on? Where is God in all this? And the truth in 1 Kings and 2 Kings is this is the part of the Bible where God sends like a dozen prophets. This isn't a time where God's just like out to lunch and I don't care or like an, like an absentee father. No, it's the opposite. He sends prophet after prophet after prophet. And for the most part, they're not listened to. For the most part, they're marginalized. For the most part, many are killed for their simple message of saying, return to God, return to Yahweh, turn from your idols. It's an uncomplex message. And the prophets give it over and over. And Jesus summarizes it like this. In Matthew 23, Jesus kind of shows us, I'm the true king, but I'm also the true and final prophet. Look at Matthew 23 with me. He tells a story about this time and a story about himself. Now listen to another story. A certain landowner planted a vineyard and built a wall around it, dug a pit for pressing out the grape juice. Sounds great. Built a lookout tower, helpful. And then he leased the vineyard to tenant farmers and moved to another country. At the time of the grape harvest, he sent his servants back to collect his share of the crop. But the farmers grabbed his servants, beat one, killed one, stoned another. So the landowner sent a larger group of servants to collect him, but the results were the same. Finally, the owner sent his son, thinking, surely they will respect my son. And when the tenant farmer saw his son coming, they said to one another, here comes the heir to the estate. Come on, let's kill him and get the estate for themselves. So they grabbed him, dragged him out of the vineyard, and murdered him. Jesus tells this story describing the time of First and Second Kings as he's also describing the Pharisees right in front of him. Pharisees were people who loved, or didn't love, obeyed many of God's rules, but not because they loved God. They loved being respected, idle. They loved being religious, its own weird idol. They loved the things that clericalism brought them, being a part of ministry brought them, but they didn't love God. And in much the same way, Jesus was saying, just as Israel killed the prophets, so now you Pharisees are the inheritors of this killing the prophets. And Jesus is the son who will finally be sent, the final prophet who dies for us. God owns Israel, and the people simply will not listen to the owner, no matter how many servants, prophets he sends, even his son one day. But there is some green on the chart. Y'all saw some green on that chart, right? On that right side, on Judah's side, we had a couple good kings, And my favorite king on the list that I want to highlight to you, the one who tears down that terrible altar at Bethel in chapter 22, is my man, Josiah. Great name for a child. If you're having a child, Josiah is a great name. (laughs) Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign. He reigned for 31 years in Jerusalem. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and walked in all the ways of David, his father part of Josiah's program was to say, hey, the temple's full of idols. The temple's like leaning and like falling over. We're gonna repair the temple. We're gonna clean out the idols and we're gonna worship God. And they start doing that, cleaning it out and fixing it up. And lo and behold, they find the Bible. And you're like, oh wow, Judah was real lost. So lost they didn't even know where the Bible was. The priests are like, oh, look, look what I found. They bring it to Josiah and Josiah's like, hey man, read it. Like, let's let's read this thing. He reads it. And then he starts to weep as he's like, I found God. I found God at his word. Wait, here we are. We, we found him. Chapter 23. This is what Josiah did. Then the king sent and all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem were gathered to him. He says, I found the Bible. Everyone come here. Verse 2. And the king went up to the house of the Lord, and with him all the men of Judah, all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and the priests and the prophets, and all the people, both small and great. And he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant that had been found in the house of the Lord. And the king stood by a pillar. You can see him just like. Grabbing a pillar. He's like, man, this is happening. This is what we've been missing in our life. Made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord, to keep his commandments and his testimonies and statues with all of his heart and soul, to perform the words of the covenant that were written in this book. And all the people joined in the covenant and the king commanded Hilakai, the high priest, to bring out of the temple all the vessels made for Baal, all the ones for Asherah, and to burn them outside Jerusalem in the valley of Kidron. Church, God's word changes lives. Let it change your life. It sounds like common sense, but it sure ain't common practice. Just let it change your life. Trust God's word. Say, I'm just going to read it. Grab a citizen's Bible reading plan. It's two chapters a day. And this summer, just say, if I'm traveling, if I'm at the beach, if I'm just working two jobs, it don't matter. Say, Lord, I'm trusting you to change my life or continue changing my life. I'm putting my faith out of myself and me figuring out every inch of my life and saying, what if I worried less and put my faith in God more? Because we stress and we stress and stress about our life, at least many of us do. And God's inviting you say, what if you came to my word first instead? What if we remove the idolatry off the top rope of that I'm in control of my life? Idol. What if it says, if I just manage my time correctly, I'll get it all right? Idle. If I just had a perfect budget? Idle. If I just had enough fun? Idle. And said, all that stuff is good. We should manage our time. It's good to have fun. But what if I said, I'm going to prioritize time in God's word first, like Josiah, that it was so much a mess. He didn't even know where the Bible was. And things started to change immediately. People were burning down altars of other gods, they're throwing away gold pieces of things they're using to worship. They were down. Make Sunday a deep priority to worship God with his word and song and liturgy. Hear from God through his word and sermons. Because as we see, our choices matter before God. God brings fruit by his word and spirit working together. And he destroys these idols and goes on a rampage. And it's a great example of what repentance is. Repentance is turning to God and turning away from something. I was talking with someone in our congregation the other day of how important it is when we repent to not just say no to a thing, but go say yes to something else. If we just say no to a thing, it will be replaced by another thing that we worship instead of Jesus. I remember in my frat house, I had a guy that, that got arrested for drugs. He was writing prescriptions, like bad prescriptions and dealing pills. And he got clean and got out of jail. And then was like, all right, man. He's like, hey, who wants some steroids? Let's get yoked. And I was like, bro, he just switched one for another. He switched one hustle for like a more legitimate sounding hustle of like crazy fitness. And it was so sad because he bumped. I was like, come on, bro. Like you're in jail. You don't want this life. Like, let's go get out of this. And he was like, nah, man, I'm going to be fit, man. I'm getting to a higher level. You need to come with me. I was like, nah, I'm good on the roids. But it's so easy. That's a wild story. But it's so easy through a pen of one thing and just pick up another. I'm going to get rid of this toxic relationship and pick up a new one. I'm going to get rid of this job and get another job. And maybe we got to make some changes, but make them before the Lord to put them first. They're doing the same thing. They got to throw out all the idols if they're going to worship God. They made choices. These kings made choices and the people thrived or suffered because of their choices. The same for us. It's not just you who has to deal with your choices. Everyone around you will be blessed as you follow Jesus, and everyone around you will experience the effects of sin and curse as you refuse to follow Jesus. That's a sobering thought. People you're in charge of at work or on a team with. People in your home, your roommates, your family. Everything you care about actually hangs on this idea that the best future for you and everyone around you is you following Jesus And the worst future for everyone around you is you not following Jesus. And the paths diverge that simply, no matter how much junk we try to stuff in between those. Well, God blesses Judah through Josiah's reign and repentance, sadly, it's too late. It's too little, too late. 2 Kings 23 tells us kind of the whole story. But in the 18th year of King Josiah, the Passover was kept to the Lord in Jerusalem. They brought back the Passover. Moreover, Josiah put away the mediums and the necromancers. Those are people who speak to the dead. So put away the witchcraft, put away the astrology. And the household gods threw those away. And the idols and all the abominations that were seen in the land of Judah and Jerusalem that he might establish the words of the law that were written in the book that Hilkiah the priest found in the house of the Lord. And before him, there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all of his heart, with all of his soul, and with all of his might, according to the law of Moses, nor did any like him arise after him. But still the Lord did not turn from his burning of his great wrath, by which his anger was kindled against Judah because of all the provocations, all the things they did with which Manasseh, had provoked him. And the Lord said, I will remove Judah also out of my sight as I've removed Israel. Israel got conquered and disappeared. I will cast off the city that I've chosen, Jerusalem, and the house of which I said, my name shall be there. Josiah's choices mattered, but so did all the evil kings, especially Manasseh. Manasseh, it says in the scriptures, led them into a wickedness that exceeded even the most grotesque of the pagan nations, fully endorsing witchcraft, maximizing idolatry, killed innocent people apparently in the streets. We don't know why or how, but it says blood was spilt Everywhere in those days, culminating in when Manasseh sacrificed his own son by burning him to death and sacrifice on the altar of a pagan god. So God says, because of the nation's sin, the warning of 1 Kings 9 that he gave to Solomon right after finishing the temple comes to pass. 1 Kings 9 says this, and this house, this beautiful temple, something that the ancient world, people would come their whole life to come see this temple. It was so beautiful and ornate. It will become a heap of ruins. Everyone will pass by, it will be astonished, it will hiss. And they will say, why has the Lord done this to the land and to this house? Then they will say, because they abandoned the Lord, of, Lord their God who brought their fathers out of the land of Egypt. And they lay hold to other gods and worship them and serve them. Therefore, the Lord has brought all this disaster on them. God brings the judgment, even though there was a good king in Josiah, because of all the evil kings, to show all the nations that if you do not follow God, this is what the end will look like. And God does this first to Judah by Necho, the pharaoh at the time, killing Josiah in battle. Capturing Judah's kings, then they start paying tribute to Egypt. See this reversal of the exodus. Here the Hebrew people are paying taxes to Egypt again, hundreds of years later, because of their chosen sin to put them in bondage. Necho is this interesting historical figure. He was one of the first people ever, he led an expedition, he paid for it to circumnavigate the entire continent of Africa. That was in the 7th century B.C., Likewise, he tried to connect the Red Sea to the Mediterranean Sea, starting an ancient Suez Canal. It proved to be too much. But I tell you these kind of historical facts. to see, Necco's not a fairy tale. Nears Josiah, that's secular history. This is our history, church. A history that plays out across Asia and Africa and southern Europe with real people interacting with a real God, where their choices and your choices matter. We are not puppets on strings, but we do live before a very, very real God who loves us and loves us dearly. The final conqueror and exiler of Judah comes in the form of King Nebuchadnezzar, another historical figure. He's the king of Babylon. He conquers Necho and then he conquers Israel too. And chapter 24 says this, At the time of the servants of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up to Jerusalem, and the city was besieged. God's city that David had fought hard to bring the ark into, make Jerusalem the capital of Israel, the high and holy moment, full of the temple, besieged. And King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to the city while his servants were besieging it. He walks right in. And Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, gave himself up to the king of Babylon himself, his mom, his servants, his officials, his palace officials. The king of Babylon took a prisoner in the eighth year of his reign and carried off all the treasures of the house of the Lord and treasures of the king's house and cut into pieces all the vessels of gold in the temple of the Lord, which Solomon the king of Israel had made and the Lord had foretold. He carried away all of Jerusalem and all the officials and all the mighty men of valor, 10,000 captives and all the craftsmen and all the smiths. None remain except the poorest people of the land, carried away Jehoiakim to Babylon. A foreign ruler decimates Jerusalem. All the wondrous riches of Solomon are now thoroughly gone, ransacked by the Egyptians, paid away in taxes, and finally taken by the king of Babylon in modern-day Iraq. And what they did of why did they take them captive? It sounds strange to us, but that was their way to keep the rebellions down. What if we take away all your leading people, all your educators, all your warriors, all the sorts of people who might make a rebellion, and then we bring them to Babylon, teach them Babylonian, and show them how good it is to be a Babylonian. Just assimilate them right into the culture. It was their way to undermine the very hearts of the peoples they conquered. And you can read more about that in the book of Daniel, as Daniel seeks to be faithful under Nebuchadnezzar. And then you can read about it in the book of Esther, as a young woman seeks to be faithful under the now reign of Xerxes I, who is a Persian king and also the bad guy in the movie 300. But look what happens. In the last lines of 2 Kings, the very end of the story, they're entering the exile under God's judgment. And chapter 25 says this, and in the 37th year of the exile of Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, he's an old man now. In the 12th month, on the 27th day of the month, down to a certain day of the year, they record this, evil Merodach, another king after Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon in that year began to reign and he graciously freed Jehoiakim, king of Judah from prison. No reason is given. And he spoke kindly to him and gave him a seat above the seats of kings who are with him in Babylon. So he moves from prison to speaking kindly to a seat at the table above all other captured kings could they just keep all the kings in prison to show who they conquered so jehoiakim put off his prison garments and every day of his life he dined regularly at the king's table for his allowance a regular allowance was given to him by the king according to his daily needs as long as he lived jehoiakim is a son of Solomon, son of David. He's kept alive. He's given the best seat it's going to be while being captured. All by grace of God's promise that he would keep a son of David on the throne and his line alive, that one day the Messiah would come, no matter how big a mess God's kings and people made. It is by sheer grace. It's not because Jehoiakim had some skills. It wasn't because he liked Jehoiakim. It says this, literally his name's Evil Merodach. You know he's bad. (laughs) Looked into the prison and said, you, garments off, you're at my table for the rest of your life. And we read this. In Jesus' genealogy in Matthew 1, verse 11 and 12, we learn just how very important this moment is. And Josiah, the father of Jokinah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon, and after the deportation of Babylon, Jehoiakim was the father of Sheetal, and Sheetal, the father of Zerubbabel, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, Of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. This is God preserving his line through David to keep his promise despite the failures of God's people. God keeps his promise, even in exile, even in the failure of kings and nations. The son of David remains to bring the true Savior King through. Jesus being the son of David is no minor thing in the New Testament. It's mentioned 11 separate times. It's a major connection point to understanding the whole Bible. And as one theologian put it, we have a promise making God and a promise keeping God. And that's good news for us, a promise-breaking people, that God keeps his promises no matter what. The good news is that King Jesus rose from the dead and God kept his promise to save us from Genesis 3.15, that we too get to lose our prison garments. We too get to walk away from sin and its slavery. The good news is King Jesus rose from the dead and will return to rule the earth. That God kept his promise to bring an eternal kingdom from the line of David, from 2 Samuel 7, a kingdom that's perfectly just, that rights every wrong, that delivers from death and has no end. Church, you have been given a seat at the king's eternal table because God kept his promise that one day Jesus would come die and rise for you. See, people make promises all the time and break them all the time. You ever made a promise and broke it? Ever had a promise made to you and it got broken? We are all too familiar with promises not being kept. But when God makes a promise, he never breaks it. He always comes through. And God's promise to us isn't over. The promise is alive for you today. If you put your faith in Christ, your sins are forgiven, your prison clothes come off, and you have a seat at the king's table forevermore today. And it gets even better because if you already trust in Christ, the king is coming back. Everything promised in scripture is not here We're the people looking forward to a promise. Our hope is in King Jesus' return, which means our suffering right now has eternal purpose. When we suffer with God in this life, we are preparing for eternal glory with the King forever. We hope in King Jesus' return so we continue to push the gospel, to bring the gospel to our neighborhoods and our nations. We hope in King Jesus' return that we can forgive one another at the cross or know the final judgment is coming. That makes you a forgiving person knowing either God has died for this person so they're forgiven or they'll face judgment so I don't have to be their judge. Our hope is that King Jesus is returning so we can walk humbly, we can do justice, we can love mercy because we know the most just, merciful King of all time is actually coming. We're just echoes of a future into people's life. Our hope is in King Jesus' return so we can actually lay down our idols. It's actually safe to let go of success or being right or the way you pursue peace away from God. And actually put our hope and our faith in a Jesus who's coming back. Our hearts are prone to leave God for idolatry, but the Lord's heart for us stays the same. Our heart wanders. God's heart is steady. And that's good news to us. God keeps his promises to you, not on the basis of what you've done or haven't done, but on the basis of what his son has done. God is faithful because Jesus finished the work on the cross. It shows us the faithfulness of God throughout all generations of mankind. God is faithful to his words even when we're faithless in our works. Every king in the Bible points us through their successes and failures to a true king who never fails. Jesus is the king who succeeds through sacrifice. His own body and blood for us. Jesus is the true King who dies for his people. You've been listening to the Citizens Church Podcast. Special thanks to Murphy DX who recorded our theme music. If you'd like to learn more about Citizens Church in Birmingham, Alabama, you can visit us on our website at citizensbhm.com or on the usual suspects, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram.